HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Hey there, HRN listeners. This is Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears. I know that news about COVID-19 and the coronavirus has made a lot of people nervous about getting sick. This collective unease has already had a big impact on our restaurant and food communities, especially in New York's Chinatowns. We hope that now more than ever, our listeners will join us in supporting restaurants and the hospitality industry at large. Many of the restaurants we love are small, independent businesses. That means that even one or two bad weeks can put them in jeopardy of cutting staff, limiting hours, or even having to close for good. As long as we're still able, we should go out to eat and support our favorite restaurants. I think it's also great to remember that hospitality professionals are really good at hygiene and food safety practices. Long before there were guides all over the news about how to properly wash your hands, they were already experts at hygiene. Guests' health is tantamount to successful hospitality in any restaurant. And even if you don't want to go out, you can still support restaurants by ordering delivery, buying gift cards, and giving them some extra love on social media. What better way to handle a crisis than by supporting those in our own community? If we don't support them now, they might not be there when this crisis is over. Join HRN in supporting restaurants during this time, especially our friends in Chinatowns around the country. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome one of the world's most acclaimed pastry chefs, Dominique Ansel. In today's episode, we'll talk to Dominique about what it takes to make great pastry, his new book, Everyone Can Bake, and we'll hear Dominique's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. We already know that Julia really valued learning from the experts, especially chefs. She also spent a lot of time learning about, writing about, teaching about, and perfecting making French pastry and bread. She really wanted to master the technique 
and duplicate the delights she'd experienced at the best bakeries in France. Mastering the Art of French Cooking Volume 2 famously has a nearly 20-page long recipe for making French bread. Julia managed to trim it down to a scant 10 pages in The Way to Cook, including photos, but that book actually has a bigger trim size. In any case, Julia once said, there are only four great arts, music, painting, sculpture, and ornamental pastry. Now, she said that with tongue-in-cheek, and I think she might have been quoting someone else, but what she was alluding to was the tremendous skill and precision, as well as artistry, that it takes to be a great pastry chef. Like all cooking done well, it's a magic mix of science and art, but pastry takes it to another level because the artistry needs to be met with accuracy. Someone who has garnered a lot of recent acclaim for his innovation and creativity in baking is pastry chef Dominique Ansel. A James Beard Award winner and owner of Dominique Ansel Bakeries in New York, London, Los Angeles, and now Hong Kong, Chef Dominique has created some of the most talked about recent pastry creations, including most famously the Cronut, as well as the Cookie Shot, Frozen S'more, and Blossoming Hot Chocolate. Named the world's best pastry chef in 2017, as well as the most innovative people under 40 by Business Insider, Dominique has already been bestowed with France's second highest honor, the L'Ordre du Mérité Agricole, His first cookbook, Dominique Ansel, The Secret Recipes, was published in 2014. Before opening his first bakery in New York City in 2011, his star rose as a pastry chef at our good friend chef Daniel Baloud's flagship New York restaurant, Danielle. He joins us today to encourage baking know-how and give us a sneak peek at his new book, Everyone Can Bake, Simple Recipes to Master and Mix. Welcome to the podcast, Dominique. Thank you, Todd. Thank you for having me. Well, we're really glad you could join us. So I want to start with like a very broad question, almost maybe philosophical. Did, did you choose pastry or, or did you find that it chose you? Well, for me, uh, you know, I grew up in a, in a small, humble family in the north of France. And I, uh, growing up, my parents didn't have much money to send me to school. So very early on, when I was uh, 15, I uh, had to decide what to do because I couldn't keep on going to school. So I decided to uh, to work in the kitchen, thinking that it was going to be easy. So I'm thinking that uh, it was something that I would enjoy, and uh, I started working in the kitchen as a as a chef. So I was washing dishes, uh, cleaning uh, pots and pans, and uh, my first year was actually pretty rough. Uh, it was very difficult, very challenging, walking walking long hours, uh, very stressful. And uh, it's only after the second year that I started like enjoying what I what I did. I've learned definitely learned a lot in the kitchen. Uh, you know, uh, some sort of uh, discipline and uh, strictness into uh, into working, but also uh, something that I apply in my personal life, which uh, which made me a better uh, teenager, I think. And was the kitchen you started in a pastry or or bakery, or was it a regular sort of restaurant or catering kitchen? So it, it was a restaurant, a small restaurant uh, next to a next to a theater, and uh, I was uh, one of the young young cook there. So I was actually uh, trained as a chef, savory chef, when I first uh, began my my career, uh, which is something I enjoy a lot as well. And I later on I switched to uh, to to do more pastry, uh, which I, I love now. And tell us more about that switch. Was there an aha moment, or the pastry chef was sick and they put you on the line, or what? 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 What happened? 
Well, actually, when, when you start in the kitchen in France, of course, you start washing dishes, cleaning pots, like sweeping the floor. Uh, I was a young kid. After a little while, they put you uh, doing all the appetizer. So when you do the appetizer, you also, also do desserts. It's one of the first stations that you learn. Um, just like call, uh, all, everything that's called, all the cold place. And uh, when I was a uh, savory chef, of course, you know, when you cook, you cook with with your heart. I would say you cook with your heart, you season, you test everything. Everything changes all the time. So there's no, nothing too precise. But as a young chef, uh, when I was given a recipe, and when I had to look at every instruction, pull the scale out of the, uh, the, the toolbox, and now start measuring precisely, uh, taking a thermometer to, like, to, to check temperature and everything, now I discover new skills, which is a lot more scientific, a lot more organized, a lot more precise. And I instantly loved it. I loved the fact that everything I was doing in the kitchen will come out like perfect every single time. And I, I learned that science was behind it. And I, this is when I discovered baking. I see. And did you? Uh, and how did you end up uh, getting to New York and to working for Daniel Ballou? Well, I worked in France for uh, for the majority of, of, of my career, and uh, I worked in Paris for close to 10 years. When I was in, when I was in Paris, I worked for Fauchon. Fauchon is one of the, uh, the the greatest retailer. We have a huge pastry section, uh, one of the, the best pastry shops in, in Paris as well. I worked for them for, t- for 10 years, and uh, during the, this time, I, I started as a cook, as a uh, pastry cook there. Uh, so I was one of uh, 30 people that were hired, and uh, they told us they would keep three people after uh, the, the, the three months we were hired for, and uh, two weeks before the end, they told us they would only keep one person, and uh, I was the person selected uh, to stay in the team. So I was supposed to stay for four months, uh, and it uh, ended up like uh, spending close to uh, eight years at Fauchon. And uh, I started as a cook, um, the, the, the lowest grade in the kitchen, when I left, I was the uh, corporate chef uh, in charge of the expansion of the brand for pastry uh, internationally. So I, I love traveling. I love like going to different places, learn about different cultures, and and setting up shops. And uh, after my time at Fauchon, I decided it was time for me to go and, and do something else. So Daniel, uh, Daniel Bully reached out to me. Daniel is one of the greatest chefs in, in New York and United States. Uh, he has a fine dining uh, restaurant called Daniel. Uh, in New York City, and he uh, asked me to come uh, join the team and, uh, and 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 know a little bit about New York. And New York, of course, as as a French kid, that's that's the big city, the city uh, where like never, nothing ever stops. Where uh, there's always uh, something to learn, always new restaurants. So very, I was very very excited about the opportunity. I came to New York with uh, my two suitcases, uh, working for Daniel. And I instantly loved it. So I stayed at Daniel for uh, close to six years. And in 2011, I decided to uh, to open my own shop, to open my own uh, small bakery in New York City. And is it is somewhat the experience that you had working with Fauchon, which is a retailer, that kind of gave you that combination with Danielle and all that other experience? Is that sort of what kind of made you be in a position where you thought, oh, one thing you'd like to do is have your own bakeries? Yes, it's a really good question. Uh, working in a restaurant and working in a retail shop is a completely different job. Even as a pastry chef, uh, I will say when you're a pastry chef in a restaurant, you you learn to work with the season. So you learn about the fruits and the seasonality and what what you can get and when. 
uh, it's uh, you have to change the menu every every week, every few weeks. You have to uh, introduce new dishes. When you're a pastry chef in uh, in a retail and in a bakery, it's a lot different. You have to plan ahead of time for holidays. You have to uh, you have to organize yourself. Uh, I would say like better or differently. Uh, you have to think uh, that everything you make is going to be sitting in a pastry case. It's going to be um, it's going to be steel. And I always I always tell people the the, the pastries in. Uh, in the retail environment, are the, the the stars of a silent movie because they speak for themselves. You all only look at them just for a quick seconds, and you interact with them like very quickly. So they have to be beautiful. You have to be like attracting your eyes and you look. And when uh, you're in a restaurant, and uh, the opposite is that you have a server that comes to your uh, your, your table, so he can tell you any stories about why. We use different shapes in the plates and why the colors are intermixed and the flavors and textures. So it's a lot more poetic to be in a, in a restaurant so when you have someone to introduce you to the dish. But when you're in retail, it's a little bit more challenging, but it's still possible to do things that are uh, eye-catching and also delicious and interactive and, and memorable. Well, I think that brings us to a good place. I'm sure you, you're maybe a little tired of answering this question, but I don't think we can sp- speak to you be- without talking about the cronut because I can't think of a, a, a new food that was such a sensation or talked about by probably you know more people that could connect it with your name or your bakery. But So given what you were just talking about in particular, it, was that kind of where some of the inspiration from the cronut came, which is this idea that the, the products have to speak to the customer from the display shelf? Uh, so the cornet uh, came about uh, during uh, one of our, our meetings with the team. Uh, we were, I, I, when I first opened my bakery, I wanted to change the menu very often, uh, which is a little bit the, the habits of work from a pastry chef in a restaurant. I love changes, and I love uh, things that are fresh made, and I want to bring some of these to, uh, to my bakery that are recently opened. So I opened the bakery in 2011 with only four employees, two people in the kitchen and two people uh, in the front of the house to make coffees and serve pastries. And that's it. We had no uh, dishwasher, no one to clean, no one, no managers. It was just like uh, me and just four people. So a very, very small team. And uh, I remember uh, one of the meeting with the team, someone had suggested to do a donut for our Mother's Day. And I told him that I didn't have a recipe for donut, but I'll come up with something. So, of course, I'm French. I, I, I grew up eating croissants, which I love the textures. I love the flaky layers. I love the, the tiny air bubble and the, just the, the flavors. And I love all of the all of, of the aspect of the croissant. And I want to introduce it into a shape of a donut. So I created the the, the cornet. It took actually it took me uh, over three months to perfect the recipe. It's not just a croissant that's fried. It's a lot more complex than this. Uh, it's, uh, it uses similar techniques, which is a fermentation and what we call lamination, uh, the technique of uh, overlapping butter and dough uh, hundreds of times to make all these like beautiful layers. So it uses similar techniques, but uh, it's a recipe that uh, was. Re- I would say refined and, and tweaked so many times. So after three months, I was happy with the result. I put the cornet on the menu uh, on the weekend of uh, Valentine's Day, and I remember a blogger came, a blogger from New York, took snapped a quick photo with his phone, put it on his blog, and he called me the next day. The uh, article, the article he posted on his blog, went viral. And at the time, I was only sleep 
just like three or four hours a night with a small team in a small shop. And I was like, listen, I'm happy for you. I'm going to go to sleep. He was like, no, no, you don't understand. This article went viral. I had an increase of traffic of 300% on my website and over 140,000 links in just a few minutes, in a few hours, sorry. And uh, the article went viral. So once again, I was like, I'm really happy for you. I will need to get some rest. He was like, listen, just make more for tomorrow. I think you're going to be busy. And uh, of course, by day two, we had like 40, 50 people. By day three, we had over 150 people waiting outside before we opened the shop. And this is when it went viral. And I still I still don't know what happened exactly or how, how it happened so fast. But at the time, it was just like, the, the world was spreading uh, across the, the the country and across the world, and people were coming just from every every part of the world to uh, to get the cornet. And it was uh, very overwhelming because at the time I still had only four employees. It was a small, very humble bakery, which it still is. Uh, we don't have too much space. My kitchen is very very tiny. I have one table only in the kitchen, and I was doing my best to uh, to keep up with uh, the the volume and also keep up with uh, the quality because it's more important for me. And so now I think the, the, the quantity of production for cronuts and the locations that you have that sell them is kind of controlled, but it sounds like that wasn't by design. You never had any, uh, I mean, it's been by design, uh, presumably through a learning process or a, a compensating process, but it w- was it originally something you just thought you'd have for three months and then move on from? Uh, originally, it's something I wanted to put on, on the menu for the weekend, and uh, I mean, it went viral, so we, we could never stop. So what we've we've done, we've done a lot of beautiful things with the cornet. Uh, I've raised like hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to uh, fight against hunger in New York City by auctioning off uh, cornet uh, with different charities here. And uh, it's it's amazing, you know, like we've raised uh, over a hundred thousand dollars selling uh, auctioning off less than t- uh, twenty-four cornet, only twenty-four cornet, and uh, we change the flavor every single month. And we have never, ever repeated uh, the same flavor twice. And it's a rule of ours, uh, which uh, which is challenging. So we uh, every month is a new flavor, every uh, first of each month. And even across the world, across uh, different locations, we never repeat the same flavor. So we always come up with some new combination of flavors using like herbs, spices, using different fruits, uh, different chocolates. But uh, it's always, always unique and original. Wow. And so, I mean, it's really in some ways the Dominique Ansel bakeries or the, the house that the Cronut built, which is a very unexpected um, thing, I'm sure. But has the success of, of, of the Cronut and the thus of, of your operation, has that changed your approach to being a pastry chef? Or how, how have you moved forward from that, that, that fateful day with the blogger? I think that the Cronut uh, was uh, an eye-opening and and a door opening to uh, a bigger world. I think that, uh, you know, as a pastry chef, I've always been curious and, and creative, always want to do more and create new things. The corner just give, give me an opportunity to show a little bit more of my work, uh, not just with one product, but with the rest. After the corner, I uh, quickly uh, realized that I didn't want my creation to kill my creativity. And I really wanted to move forward and show people what else I've got. You know, as I always say, it's like a, a singer that comes up with a, a popular song. You don't want them to sing 
always the same song forever. You want them to come up with like new songs because you like you like their style, you like what they do. I think it's, it's the same for uh, for pastry chef or chef in general. Like uh, as as an artist, you know, we we love changes, and as uh, what I've done. With the, with the, uh, after the Conrad, so I created uh, what's called the uh, frozen s'mores, and I would say it's one of my my my, uh, my base creation as well. The frozen s'mores is essentially uh, like the American s'mores. You know, they're tossing the the marshmallow on a campfire with a wooden stick. As uh, a tradition, it's very American. I created an ice cream version of it, which is uh, an, uh, vanilla ice cream. Uh, that's a cube that is uh, coated with a chocolate wafer with a little bit of sea salt, covered with a honey marshmallow, so there's barely any sugar. And it's uh, served on a branch, a uh, wooden branch, that has been uh, smoked with apple wood. And we torch this with uh, uh, a blowtorch to order in front of the guests. So the outside shell, the outside of the marshmallow, like creates like a thin shell, almost like a creme brulee, that's like beautifully caramelized and golden. So when you bite into it, it's like crunchy, it's chewy, it's cold. There's a lot of different textures, and it's, it's a beautiful creation that uh, speaks for. Uh, the uh, the locals and uh, the things that people grew up with. So it's very emotional. It's, uh, it's a connection between uh, the, the thought, the food, and the quality and the emotions of people eating it. Uh, right after this, I created what, what's called the uh, cookie shot. It's a chocolate chip cookie shaped as shot glass. And inside, uh, we uh, pour uh, milk that is infused with uh, vanilla. So the cookies are warm and the milk is cold. So it's another... Um, Another uh, time to like celebrate American tradition, uh, milk and cookie. It's something that every kid grew up with here in America, and it's a, it's a, it's a way for me to uh, to express uh, creativity through uh, emotions and memories. Well, it also strikes me that you have taken these really very fundamentally American uh, bakery or or, or sweet um, treats and kind of infused them with a French perspective and French technique so you're sort of combining the best of both worlds to create something that's both familiar and new it really seems to me as sort of a a great expression of of your embracing uh being american based absolutely i think it's, uh, it's the best of both worlds uh, of course the inspiration is the american culture and the tradition and uh with this i always add the the, the french techniques the uh the, the the recipes, the textures, and uh, sometimes some ingredients as well, uh, like we use at uh, Tahitian vanilla, for example. And it's, uh, it's very important for me to combine both and make uh, like a refined, elegant, beautiful, and tasty version of uh, what they, uh, they think they might know, might, or at least recognize, and something still like similar at some time. Well, you, I don't think you yet have a bakery in France, but have you gotten feedback from French people on, on this kind of combination? Because, you know, at one point I felt croissants were sacred in France, and I hate to say this, but but my impression is it's becoming, a, not not its existence, but good croissants are becoming a, an endangered species in France, I think. They're harder and harder to find properly, not sort of industrially influenced one, which I, I find quite horrifying and depressing. I don't know if that's been your experience, but what what sort of things have you found from French customers sampling your wares? So there's two different things. I also like to comment on the croissant question. I, I agree with you, like making beautiful croissants more uh, rare to find a good croissant. I take it off fried without croissant. And uh, in 
every single of our location uh, around the world. Uh, all our chefs are uh, assigned uh, in a procedure for opening the shop to take a cross-section of the croissant and to send photos every morning to me so I can look at the quality and check on the quality of a croissant. So a croissant, you'll tell me it's something simple, yes, but also to me it's very complex. It's uh, something can be so beautiful when it's well done. It should be flaky. It should be uh, it should have a nice, like what we call honeycomb in the center uh, with all these like little, like, air pockets that defines the, uh, the texture of the croissant, a uh, nice little crust, golden color. So I take a lot of pride with my croissant, and I think it's something very, very important. I, I don't uh, mess around with my classics, and I like, I like them to be perfect. And, uh, you know, in, in France, I think that there's still a market that is uh, curious and excited, and more, a lot more traditional than uh, other places because uh, culturally uh, bakeries are everywhere, and people... Um, you know, go to the bakery growing up like m many times a day. So it's not something that you can you can change too much. But as I'll say that last year I did a pop-up in Paris uh, introducing some of my creations. And it was it was a huge hit. People loved it because it's it's new, because it's modern, because it's it's uh, playful, it's tasty, it's elegant, it's that high quality. So it's everything that people, French people still appreciate. So bringing uh, something new with a, a tweak of creativity and introducing uh, some some ideas and, and some thoughts and some emotions through pastry. And so do you think, because I feel like there's almost two worlds evolving in France. I mean, in Paris, you can still find, because there's very high-end and there's money in Paris for, you know, artisanal products. That, But I, I think the, the shame that I'm finding is that the artisanal bakers used to be the standard in France, and every village had a, had a baker with, you know, very good croissant, and that started to ebb away. Is, is, is that what you see, too, that there's sort of these kind of two worlds of, of croissant kind of emerging within France? Yeah, that's true. There's a there's a change and a shift into the the way that people consume in general. As I will say, like when I was still in France like 15 years ago, I would see a lot of bread and croissants in supermarkets, and uh, you know the 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 section, so the selection and the section extending like progressively because you know it's easier, I will say, and it's faster, but it's not necessarily better. And uh, nowadays, you see a lot of like, younger chefs coming back uh, with uh, more traditions, with more authenticity, and uh, trying to like showcase and, and not lose the, the, the roots of who we are and what we do. Of course, it's, it's more work uh, to make a beautiful croissant, fresh every day. Uh, of course, it's harder. Of course, you don't make as much money, but it's, uh, it's uh, what, you know, what we grew up with, and it's, that's important to, to keep the tradition and, and the roots of, of baking. So there's still there's still a market for for uh, for this, and there's still people excited about uh, real quality, high quality croissant. Well, I totally agree. So let, let, we'll we'll keep flying the the, the the croissant flag. All right, we're gonna take a break, and we'll be back to talk to Chef Dominique about his newest book, Everyone Can Bake. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S. grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. 
They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. Welcome back. We're talking to one of the world's best pastry chefs, Dominique Ansel, about his love of baking and his soon-to-be-published book, Everyone Can Bake, Simple Recipes to Master and Mix. So th- th- this new book, I think it's quite interesting because it's you know, very much designed to be approachable and encouraging to everyone. And you know, certainly, I think we haven't talked about as much, we were just talking about the croissant, but which is generally savory, um, or traditionally savory. Um, and um, why did you decide to do the next book only on sweet pastry and essentially desserts? Well, I'm, I'm a pastry chef, so 90, 95% of what I do is sweet. Uh, I want to show uh, people uh, in this cookbook that uh, the, the, the the foundations of, of baking is some, something that people often forget. And one of the questions I ask people all the time is, uh, what is the first thing you did in the kitchen growing up? And strangely enough, most people will tell you it's something sweet. It's a cookie, it's a pie, it's a tart, it's uh, bread, it's a cake. It's something that you do with your mom, with your grandma. And uh, I found out that people were afraid growing up about baking. And baking is something that is like actually like not not too complicated. We just need uh, you just need to be um, to be thought the right way. You need the right tools, the right ingredients. And uh, I, you know, if you, if you step back and think about it, like people are not afraid of baking and making cookies and and, and cakes because they have someone next to them to tell them what to do and to guide them through each of the steps. So baking is something you know I want to showcase, and and that's what this showcase in this book. And yeah, and so you've taken that a step further too, because the book is organized in a very specific way. Can you talk a little bit about this? I, I called it a building blocks approach to to baking that you use in the book. Yeah, so the, the building blocks is a, it's a good term to to use. You know, for me it's a little bit like a like a kid, like you playing with like Legos, like you show uh, you're being shown like what what to use first, the foundations of of what you're going to build. And uh, in this book, you will find like three different sections. Uh, so we'll give you uh, what we call the base. So the base will can be anything from a cake to uh, uh, to a meringue or like a pie shell, uh, a tart shell. Uh, that's the foundation of, of, of what we can do. And then we have a second section, which is all the fillings. So all the cream, all the mousses, all the buttercream and ganaches and all the things that can, can be used to build uh, the cake and combine everything together. The last section is the, the finishing. The finishing will show you how to cut fruits, how to glaze, how to like... Uh, decorate cake, how to put everything together to make it beautiful. So those are the three three main foundations of what's in the book. And this book not only gives you the foundations, but allow you to like mix and match what you feel like like eating, what you feel like creating, uh, with the 
some still some very simple approachable recipes so you can do like a tart shell with uh, a chocolate filling and um, let's say some some apricots on top and uh, in all the steps in throughout the books you can find inspirations to finish uh, this cake differently yeah, I, I felt like the book really follows in this kind of new trend, but I think it's a very good trend of um, cookbook writers wanting to sort of teach cooking more than just have an assemblage of recipes so that people come away with the skill to do more themselves rather than just follow one recipe after another. Was that one of your goals as well? Exactly. I think, uh, you know, like working in the kitchen for me for close to 30 years now, uh, what we, we, we learn in the kitchen Growing in the kitchen, it's uh, uh, very simple that you are given recipes and you've been told to execute the recipes, to make them and to make them exactly the same. So at no point you've been t- taught like creativity, which is something I teach in every room of, of my kitchen. I really want uh, the young chefs to understand what we're doing and why we're doing it and what are all, all the changes you can and cannot make and uh, really understand the foundation. So this book is really the opportunity for people to to understand and to start like thinking how creatively they can uh, they can pair things together so of course not everything goes together but uh at least you have a, a good foundations of how to be able to like mix and match yourself to make your own creations with still a simple uh simple book well, yes, and you can you can try different things and taste them and know quite quickly whether your creative combination was successful or not Exactly. It's also a matter of like preference as, as well. It depends on what, what you like. Yes, those are always those great moments on tele- television uh, cooking shows when, when, when the uh, contestant has put together their, their very creative combination and you look at all three of the judges who are all like, mm, I'm not sure I've ever had that together. And usually it doesn't work, but occasionally they surprise them. That's why it happens too. And it's, you know, it's a... Uh, it's a learning curve and for anyone at any level in the kitchen. When you're younger, you, t- you try all things that you, you might think might work or not. And with experience, you know, with time, uh, you know what doesn't work. So you don't, you don't try everything either, but you know what makes sense to, to, to combine. It can be in terms of like flavors, you know, you, you like a little bit of acidity, a little bit of sweetness, uh, a little bit of contrast always. And I love contrast, uh, contrast in every form. A contrast of textures. You can have a little creamy, a little crunchy. Uh, you can have uh, uh, different color as well. Contrast of color, something like bright red, something with something dark. And uh, thinking of all of this, of course, with the learning uh, throughout the years, that like, gives you uh, an opportunity to be creative on your own way. I also liked you had an example of, of learning to make a yogurt cake, I think as a child or as a, as a, a tween maybe. And um, I, I thought that was a great analogy that you used in the book about sort of learning to bake. So, so tell us, what, what, did, what did you mean by including this? Because uh, I don't think it's a recipe overall in the book, but what is you know, learning to make a yogurt cake teach one about baking? Yes. Uh, so in, in France, as a kid, uh, yogurt cake is something very, very uh, uh, traditional, I would say, and it's in, in the tradition of French people to, uh, French parents to teach you when you're a kid, uh, when you walk in the kitchen, how to make yogurt cake. So yogurt cake is something very simple. Uh, you take a, a yogurt in a, in a plastic uh, cap, so you empty the uh, two or three yogurts in a, in a mixing bowl, and then you're going to use this yogurt cup 
as a measuring cup to actually add all your ingredients. So you're going to put one cup of sugar, a quarter of a cup of oil, uh, one cup of uh, eggs, and one cup, half a cup of butter. And you're going to combine all this. It's going to make a perfect, simple yogurt cake. So it's like a, a sponge cake with yogurt base. It's sweet. It's simple. It's uh, fun to do with kids. It's easy because, you know, you don't have to measure, like, very much. You just need the cup to measure. And it's a, a great approach uh, to baking in every uh, simple family in France. And it's uh, something that is, that is very memorable for me because it's one of the first things I've done in the kitchen, uh, you know, as, as a kid. And it was baking with my mom using the cup and my grandma using the cup to measure everything. And I remember, like, once I learn it, I want to do it every weekend. <laughs> it's something fun. It's something like easy and simple. And it's one of these moments where you realize that, you know, you, you baked, you baked, and you follow steps, and you actually use science and uh, use something simple and, and fun to do it. And it's what baking is about. Yeah, I love that. But it, but it leads me to so many questions because you're not, because I think, like, there, what's this standard brand of yogurt and how big is this uh container what what would your family have used yeah that's that's a good question it's a matter of proportion of course it's uh it's a simple yogurt they're all pretty much the same size uh they're uh they're like small individual yogurt um most of of, of uh i would say dairy company make uh, more or less the same size of yogurt but it doesn't matter of the size if it's small or big because it's uh, just a matter of like proportion, right? So if you have a larger or a smaller cup of yogurt, like you can still do the same thing by just following the, the steps of making yogurt cake. I see. And it's plain yogurt, right? It, it, it doesn't work as well if it, it's flavored or Greek or anything sort of... No, we know <laughs> growing up, we never used any, anything fancy. My dad used to work in a factory and we didn't have much money. So we're buying the cheapest yogurt. Uh, they, they, you can you can buy. They're still good, you know. They are simple, like plain yogurt. And uh, yes, using the cup was just doing the trick for for the cake. I see. Well, I, I'm I'm looking forward to trying it and, and uh, seeing because I'm really curious because I think that is a tradition. There's many things that are you know very sort of American by tradition, like making a box cake from Betty Crocker or one of those. Um, but but that that tradition I've never had and I've never had it in France either. So uh, it really uh, struck a chord and and I like the analogy of what what such a simple thing teaches you about the science and proportion of baking. I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, it's it's funny because you know like I've I've been in the US for more than fifteen years now, and when I see French people I tell them about yogurt cake, I see like I see like light in their eyes and like oh my god, I remember because you know as a kid you do it, it's fun, and then you forget, you don't do it anymore, and it's really like it's tradition, it's really what it is, and and memories, and if you ask a French person, have you done yogurt cake? I can guarantee like at least like ninety percent of them have done it with their, their family growing up. And of course, not something you do all the time. But if you're French, you you'll do it, and it's more like a, a bonding time with with your kids to really like do something fun, easy, quick, and still like very tasty because they make it with their own hands. And it's it's when it tastes better, you know. It's, uh, it's those moments that are shared in the kitchen. Well, I th- I think that's also just very well observed about people's first experiences in the kitchen as, as a child or with their family, you're right, is very much about making something pastry-like or cake-like or baking or 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 sweet, and that that kind of gets disassociated from cooking when it really shouldn't, and and it's it's great that you've joined those things up. 
Absolutely. Like I, I think when I uh, grew up in the kitchen, uh, I, I've learned like cooking and baking, and uh, they're all like very close to each other. Uh, I think there's like a divide when it comes to uh, more like I would say like more professional approach to it because baking is very scientific. And the more professional baking you do, the more extensive baking you do, the more you realize that you know it's two different mind two different brain that you have to use the the cooking is more like intuitive it's more like feeling it's more like depending on the quality ingredients and the, the seasonality and the seasoning and uh, you have to adjust adapt add a little bit of this and that and uh, pastry and baking is the opposite it's just like strict organized clean precise scientific and uh, once you uh, you learn uh, both and uh, have a chance to to do both because i myself love cooking as much as I love baking, honestly. Uh, I love doing both, and uh, I, I don't see myself doing uh, more one than the other. When I, when I don't bake at work, I cook at home, and I, 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 you know, this is what I do for a living. This is what I love doing, so I feel very fortunate to have, to have learned both. Well, I mean, that that's lovely to hear the, the kind of passion and satisfaction that, that you come from and your desire to, to share, you know, both through your bakeries and through your books with others. Um, so I was going to ask you, like, you know, given that this book has a very egalitarian, everybody come join in kind of both title and approach, if there, you know, for those who check it out or buy it or cook from it, what, are there just a couple key things that you hope people you know, take take away from it? Yes, I think the most important for me is uh, for people to, to remember, uh, to, to learn how to love baking, to remember that uh, it, it is not as, as scary as it seems. I know when you tell people, like, can you bake? They're like, oh, no, my God, I can cook. I can cook a lot of things, but baking is too complicated for me. Well, just remember, remember that baking is one of the first things that most people do in the kitchen. Remember that it doesn't have to be scary. It has to be simple. Of course, you need you might need a scale, right? You might need the, the proper tools to uh, follow the recipe, read the recipe first, follow all the steps. But once you do it once, you do it a second time, a third time, and then you learn that you know it's not that scary. It's just like very precise. That's it. It's precise, and I have a lot of satisfaction myself when I do baking to have exactly perfectly the same result. And I know it because because I follow the recipe because. I follow all the steps because I don't change, I don't vary anything, and it's uh, it's, an, it's an extension of of cooking. Like I say, it's, it's a little bit more technical, but it's uh, you know what I want people to get from this book is for them to uh, not be afraid of baking first, and then to uh, to see uh, to to look at those beautiful and simple recipes that can that can make people happy and uh, find a way to uh, for them to to like dive inside and, and find their own creativity uh, by flipping the, the pages of the book and see what they feel like matching together. Well, that all sounds very encouraging. So let us know, what is your yogurt cake story? What was your favorite thing to bake as a child? And what would you relish going back to that, but haven't had in a while? Tell us what your best baking victory story is. Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org and let us know. After the break, Dominique reveals his Julia moment. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. 
but you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Dominique, your turn. What's your Julia moment? So my Julia moment, I would say, uh, I have, of course, I, I grew up in France. Uh, I grew up with uh, learning French culture, and I only moved in the U.S. in uh, when I was 20, 28, almost 30 years old. And I've learned by Julia, of course. I've learned through her books. I've learned through her uh TV show, and uh, the most uh, memorable thing is when I went to the uh, Smith, uh, Smith, Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., and uh, they had recreated uh, the whole kitchen, Julia's kitchen, in, uh, in the museum, and I remember that the counter was quite tall at the time, and uh, I was mesmerized because I know Julia was, I think, six two, six three. She was a pretty tall woman, uh, so all her counter, kitchen counter were, like, much taller, and I was uh, fascinated by all the tools and, uh, the, you know, the size of the kitchen first. It was very, very small. Uh, there was a, a moment where I realized that, you know, back then, uh, well, we didn't have much. We didn't have as much as we have today in terms of technology, you know, even like just a scale. It was much harder to bake. It was much harder to, uh, you know, the ovens were not as precise as they are today. The uh, science and, and technology was not as developed. So back then, it was still like, they were still doing some great meal, and I'm sure Julia has made some amazing meals in her kitchen, but uh, when you go back, go back in time a little bit, and you see this actual, physically see this kitchen uh, with what uh, what she had to cook, it was probably like pretty amazing to, to pull out some, uh, some great meal. No, that's great. Well, I'm thrilled that you've been to visit her kitchen. And just to clarify, for those who may not know, it's not a recreation. That That is literally piece by piece her actual kitchen moved to the Smithsonian. They they took it apart and, and shipped it down. All right. Um, well, Dominique, thank you so much for joining us and uh, sharing uh, your stories and, and, and teaching us about Everyone Can Bake. We're looking forward to it coming out. Thank you, Todd. Thank you for having me on the show today. A pleasure, and thanks everyone for listening. The book is Everyone Can Bake, Simple Recipes to Master and Mix by Dominique Ansel, with mouth-watering photography by Evan Sung. It will be published by Simon & Schuster on April 14, 2020. Search for it online or ask for it at your favorite local bookseller. To keep up with Dominique's latest innovations, check out at dominique.ansel.bakery on Facebook, and you can follow at Dominique Ansel, all one word, on Twitter and Instagram. For more details on his bakery and wares, go to dominiqueansell.com. We're at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please remember to give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
for our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.